The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST, that's G-I-S-T, at checkout. A better web starts with your website. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, August 29th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. We enter today's show with an exit. It's CNN reporter Lisa Desjardins, who is anchoring the cable newser. She recorded a goodbye video for her colleagues, which is appropriate given the medium. It was funny. It was informative. At one point, she constructs a word cloud made out of all the official goodbye emails flying around CNN. There was a big buyout. And those official emails were filled with phrases like cherish and amazing. But then she goes to a word cloud of the emails that were emailed to her personally, and they are filled with phrases like sucks and I licked all the eighth floor coffee cups. So it's funny and it's a shame that she has to leave and it's a well done video. But then Desjardins takes a moment in between stealing office supplies to make a very interesting point. I'm concerned that members of Congress could put the entire text of Fifty Shades of Grey into a bill and no one but maybe me, Jamie Dupree of Cox Radio, and a few lobbyists would ever notice. Yikes. Scary. Maybe if it were an Anais Nin novel, we wouldn't be so freaked out. But let's hope by the time the House Select Committee on Intelligence comes up with the Reauthorization Act on bestsellers based on Twilight fanfic, that Lisa Desjardins is in some place to inform the public of said bill. On today's show, we have a post-Prudy impact statement. In the spiel, I ask, what's in a name? And I answer, a lot if you're born Cornelius Lipschitz. But first, Tim Horton, Burger King, a possible merger, a possible tax inversion, which leads us to a big idea, an idea big even than the Chrisandwich. We all know Burger King. It's the one without Grimace, the one with the weird commercials. They sell you burgers. They're a little better than Arby's, a little worse than Wendy's. Tim Hortons, however, in Canada, is sort of like a coffee chain of national pride. The crullers that all of Ottawa weeps for. So when Burger King was set to buy Tim Hortons, it seemed natural. Burger King's the bigger company. It would buy Tim Hortons. But no. It turns out that Burger King, as part of this deal, if it goes through, will relocate. And corporate headquarters will go from Miami to Canada. Why? It's an example of a tax inversion. And being against tax inversions are one of the hottest things that uh, policymakers can take. Here to discuss the dent that this represents is Adam Davidson, the founding editor of Planet Money. Hello, Adam. Hey, Mike. So this is an inversion. And an inversion is when one co- an American company goes overseas, usually for tax purposes. There's lots of ways to do an inversion. It's very complicated, and no two inversions are necessarily alike. They're like snowflakes or fingerprints. But the rough idea is I'm an American company. I don't like paying all the taxes I have to pay. I buy a company in another country, and then I move my headquarters to that country. Now, what's interesting is I don't instantly get to pay taxes according to that new country's tax return. It's Mm -hmm. only new lines of business. So any existing Burger King property or Burger King line of business will still have to pay U.S. taxes at the same rate. But if I start opening lots of new Burger King's not just in Canada, but Singapore or wherever, I get to pay taxes based on Canada's laws, not on the U.S. laws. 
So it's a way to save money over the long term in taxes. And so there are other big inversion deals happening or perhaps planned. One is the drug maker Allergen and Valiant, and that they'll become an Irish company. Now, there are a couple arguments against it. In fact, there aren't exactly laws against it, but there are disincentives. For instance, if you're on the board of the company that takes this company overseas, you're supposed to uh, pay a penalty. If it hurts anybody, I think it is reasonable to say it, it hurts the American people that this means Burger King will be paying less taxes over overall and and more taxes to Canada. Now, in in this, and we should say in this specific case, it seems like the tax difference is so slight. This specific case, the motivation might be something other than inversion. But in a lot of other cases, it seems that inversion was a huge incentive. There is an argument out there that the U.S. corporate tax rates really aren't that high. The stated tax rate is high, but when you factor in all the discounts and all the reasons that companies don't have to pay, the de facto tax rate isn't high. Is that a good argument? I don't think that's necessarily the strongest argument. You get a lot of debate over who has the biggest tax burden. And it's a fight generally between the U.S., Germany and Japan. And it's a fight, of course, nobody wants to win because the the view is high taxes hurt corporate growth, et cetera, et cetera. There are an awful lot of issues that are kind of left wing versus right wing, you know, minimum wage or fiscal stimulus or lots of other things where, where you can get lots of economists on both sides. Economists who think about tax even very left-wing ones, tend to believe that corporations, and this is a radical idea for most people who are not economists, corporations should not pay taxes. What? That seems like a radical idea. Thank you, Mike. (laughs) I'm not an economist. The optimal tax rate for corporations is 0%. And the basic logic here is pretty straightforward. As a general rule, you don't want to tax things that are good, that that are beneficial. And corporate growth is broadly seen as beneficial for a lot of people, particularly progressives who like the idea of high corporate taxes. I think my sense is what they actually are thinking about is we should tax rich people. We should tax the executives and the shareholders, the top 0.1% or whoever, who are getting most of the gains. Generally, the cost of taxes is not borne by the owners or the managers. The cost of any tax that a corporation pays is borne by some combination of those people, the kind of rich people, the owners and the managers, but also by the workers and by the customers who have to pay higher prices. But there's also this cost to society in general, that if you think about a high tax rate Mm -hmm. as a hurdle that a business has to get over to make a profit. So you and I come up with a great idea for a fast food chain that's going to be way better than Burger King. It's healthier, faster. (laughs) Oh, that seems impossible. It's harder. It's called Arby's. It's (laughs) unbelievable. We're going to have roast beef, not burgers. (laughs) And any business, any new... investment in in a new business or a new factory or whatever, you run some numbers. How much money will we need to invest? Mm -hmm. What's our return over the next two years, five years, whatever? And so how much profit will we get? And so if taxes is just eating away, taking, you know, 30% or whatever of that profit, that just means there's a much bigger hurdle that that a lot of ideas that we might invest in, we're just not going to do because taxation means we're not going to make enough money to make it worth doing. In many ways, the people who are hurt most by corporate taxes are not the people who currently own shares in a company or currently work for a company or are currently customers for the company. It's people who are unemployed or underemployed because there is no company at all to work for because people didn't 
build that company. Right. So people who are unemployed or under underemployed might be getting some the benefit of some government program. I don't know, food stamps. I don't know, welfare. And maybe that government program is being paid with taxes. So maybe the argument is if corporations didn't pay taxes, we wouldn't even have to have those government programs. On the other hand, this year, Exxon paid $31 billion in taxes. They earned $79 billion, which is the most of any company. So, you know, if we do this next year, the government's not getting Exxon's $31 billion. The government's not getting Chevron's $20 billion or Apple's $13 billion or Wells Fargo's $9 billion. That adds up to a lot the government can't do. And maybe in the abstract, these corporations will get more jobs. In reality, doesn't the government need those billions of dollars more than they can trust whatever good these corporations will do if they didn't have to pay corporate taxes? There are lots of reasons why we're not getting rid of corporate taxes, and and nobody is actually seriously proposing we get rid of corporate taxes. But everybody, including leading Democrats and leading Republicans, believe that the corporate tax rate should be much lower. Economists say a lot of things that they think would be optimal that nobody actually thinks is ever going to happen. Adam Davidson is the founding editor of NPR's Planet Money. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, Mike. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it easy and fast to create your own professional website. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code GIST at checkout. You could build websites, you could build portfolios, an online store. It's very easy design. $8 a month to start a Squarespace page. It includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. And I think that if you were to start a trial. You might be saying to yourself, what about a credit card? Don't want to give you my credit card. Doesn't matter. They'll let you start a trial without a credit card. What about a discount? Like I said, if you use the offer code GIST, you get 10% off your first purchase. And we would like to thank Squarespace for their support of the GIST. I like saying the catchphrase. Makes me, no matter what else I say, it makes me seem like I wrapped it up in a nice way and that everything I said beforehand was not just improv, but really thought out beforehand. Squarespace, a better web starts with your website. If you read Slate, maybe you read the Dear Prudence column. In fact, a lot of people who read the Dear Prudence column don't even read Slate. That's how popular the Dear Prudence column is. It's just a view on human nature and offering this view and offering her advice is Dear Prudence herself, Emily Yaffe. Hello, Emily. Hi, Mike. So I want to thank you for joining us in another one of these post-pretty impact statements where we follow up with a letter writer who asks you for advice. Although in this case, it was a letter writer, but I think you advised her via the video format, right? That's right. And what was the issue at hand? Well, she called herself young and restless. This is actually from a video in 2009, and don't I look better in it. (laughs) And she was a 21-year-old, recent college graduate, who was engaged to the love of her life. I mean, as she described him, he is Prince Charming. He is hilarious, smart, sexy, kind, handsome, great career prospects. They're going to spend their life together, except she's starting to feel I got to get out of this. Yeah. She said really her whole young adult life, she's always been in a relationship or another. And she just started getting these powerful feelings. I can't get married now. But she said it made her sick to her stomach to think about breaking up with him, to telling their 
families, and would she be making a horrible mistake? She may never find a guy like this. My diagnosis for that situation, and I've seen it in the field many times, is it's a condition known as being 21. Yes. (laughs) That's the restless part. Yes. And maybe two generations ago it wasn't true, but 21's pretty young, especially if you're in a relationship since you're 19, to say, that's it, those are all the relationships I'm going to have. Well, what did you say to her? Well, I agree with you, although I have to say, as a reader of the New York Times wedding announcements, a remarkable number of people list that they met in college. So a lot of people are making that decision about someone they met when they were 19 or 20. That's true, but I also see a lot where they say, we went to the same college but didn't even know each other, which my theory is that it's like, but at least when I met him the second time, I knew he wasn't a serial killer. Like that (laughs) non-serial killer thing goes really far in the dating world. And I do think it it is, you know, 40, 50, I don't know, 30 years ago, a lot more common, especially among college graduates. You know, the age of getting married is a lot older for good and ill, but I think mostly for good. And a lot of studies show that the more you know a partner and kind of the more life experience you have, the more likely a marriage is to last. This either is a case of wanderlust or maybe just plain old lust for someone other than Mr. Prince Charming. The danger is you cannot freeze dry this wonderful person and say, I must go out and explore what the world has to offer. And then when I realize there's no one as good as you, I will reconstitute you. You break it up. Let's hope you find when you're ready, someone is great. But I said the feelings she had would capsize her relationship anyway. So I advised her to have a very serious talk with him, which I felt inevitably would lead to them parting ways. Well, I got to say, I'm really excited to hear from her. This is very much like a time machine. I mean, Well, she's 26 passed, now. Yeah, yeah. Hello. Hello, this is Mike Pesca. I'm here with Emily Yaffe, and we're calling for Young and Restless, which is uh, one person. Is that you? Yes, it sure is. Hello. Say hello, Emily. Hi. Hi. So I guess we want to know, you're still young. (laughs) How's the restless part going? (laughs) Well, you know, I, I think the advice was pretty sound. You know, I did end up breaking it off with him, unfortunately, which, you know, wasn't ideal for anybody involved, but um, we're actually still friends to this day. Then he actually got engaged again after dating somebody for about three years. Wow. I think she's really happy. So that's good news to me. Well, Young, what more do you need to know than you didn't feel, oh my God, I made a horrible mistake, that you felt, that's wonderful, tells you you did the right thing? Yeah, yeah. You know, I was I was kind of afraid of, I guess, losing him forever as a presence in my life. But, you know, I think I realized somewhere along the way that he felt more like a friend. So I'm glad I made the tough call early on before it was kind of too late. Do you think it was more uh, a function of your age and I don't want to say your immaturity, but, you know, the human need to explore a little bit or the match between you maybe wasn't as perfect as you'd hoped it was? When you're that young, you don't really know what exactly you want. And as perfect as our relationship seemed at the time, looking back on it now in my 26 years of wisdom, uh, it seems like there were a lot of things that were actually lacking from the relationship that now I would consider, you know, a must-have. And, you know, you just don't know until you have the experience just because I didn't really know exactly what I wanted. You know, it took this happening until I really realized that. Well, what do you want? Um, I just, I think I needed somebody that was a little bit more, for lack of a better word, aggressive. 
a little bit more uh, spunk to him, that kind of thing. And that's something that, you know, these days I would consider a deal breaker if a guy didn't have it. That sounds like you, Pesca. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Well, I wanted to ask one more thing. If 26-year-old you could talk to 21-year-old you, 21-year-old saying, but I love him, but I love him, I'm always going to love him, I I don't want to throw this one away, what would you say? I would have to say that um, go with my gut feeling because, you know, obviously at the point I was writing the letter, I had a really strong gut feeling, and I just tried to kind of swallow that feeling. And these days I understand the importance of a gut feeling. That is awesome. It's sometimes good, (laughs) Emily, to talk to someone who's very well adjusted at such a young age. I'm (laughs) so impressed, and you did really learn, and you do know what the essentials are, and that's going to help you find it. Yeah, absolutely, and it was very good advice, and I'm very uh, grateful that you published my letter because it really helped. Well, thank you. No longer that young and no longer restless. Oh, she's still young (laughs) enough. Thank you. Still pretty young, and if you get right down to it, a little bit restless. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. So it's good, a success story. I think you uh, didn't change the course of her life, but Pat gave her a pat on the back because she was going the right way anyway. As I've said, what a lot of people are coming to this column for, you don't know me, you're not my mother, you're not my best friend, I'm just going to lay it out, yay or nay, should I do this or that? So a lot of people are coming for me to say, yeah, you know what you've got to do. Emily Yaffe, she provides the advice. And when people take them, their life is always better. (laughs) As dear Prudence. Thank you, Emily. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. What's in a name? Shakespeare said a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. But that doesn't mean that if Rick Perry were named Chester W. Steele's a lot, he'd still be governor of Texas. I think politicians tend to have this phenomenon that makes some people a little weirded out, the men with two first name phenomenon. Sometimes it's women with two first names. But in Florida right now, there is a contest between Rick Scott and Charlie Crist. Charlie Crist. That last letter in Crist saves this from being a contest between two men with four first names. Yes, Chris saves. So I was looking through all the governors. You got Rick Perry. You got Rick Scott. You got Pat Quinn in Illinois. Pat Quinn's running mate was Sheila Simon. He beat Bill Brady. In 2002, he was on a ticket that beat the one headed by Republican Jim Ryan. In 1994, he lost to Secretary of State George Ryan. This guy's entire career is two first name laden. In Massachusetts, you got Deval Patrick. Maybe you could argue Deval's not even a first name, but yeah, it is. It's Deval Patrick's first name. And his lieutenant governor was Tim Murray, Governor Chris Christie. Now, wait a minute. That's a guy with a guy's first name and a girl's last name. What are we to think of that? Mystery Science Theater gives us this insight. Well, you know what I say? Never trust a man with two first names, especially if the first one's a woman's. You have South Carolina's governor, Nikki Haley, who is a woman with two first names, and it's also two women's first names. That's actually very rare. But now let's go to the Senate. This place is filled with people with two first names. Richard Shelby. All right, Shelby is a little more popular as a girl's name than a boy's name, but it's still in the top 500. Lindsey Graham, 
I wasn't sure whether to include Graham, but Graham's actually the 158th most popular boy's name. Michael Bennett, Bill Nelson, and Nelson's not that popular now, but when Bill Nelson was born in 1942, Nelson was quite a popular name. You've got Elizabeth Warren, female first name, male last name, Mark Kirk, Harry Reid, Bob Casey, Jack Reed, Mike Lee, Lamar Alexander, Patty Murray, and here's the guy in the Senate with the most popular first name and the most popular last name, Tim Scott, when he was born in the 60s. Tim Scott. Tim was the 13th most popular boy's name. Scott was the 15th most popular boy's name. Tim Scott. Now, I didn't count Susan Collins, and that's important because I was asking myself, how common is the phenomenon of two first names? It's not that common. Here are the 10 most popular surnames, and you don't even get to a first name as a surname except when you hit number 10. Smith, Johnson, Williams. Again, that's not Williams, so we're not counting Williams, just like I didn't count Collins. Brown, Jones, Miller, Davis, Garcia, Rodriguez, and then Wilson, which counts as a first name and a last name. So I had no real way to figure out what percentage of people had two first names. In the Senate, we've documented that there are 13 senators with two first names. So I went to a Twitter feed called at one random name, and every 15 minutes it generates a random name. (laughs) It doesn't have that many followers. Like, it's a good idea, but do you really want just a random name in your Twitter feed every 15 minutes? But for my purposes, it was good. And of the last 50, only Julius Cornelius was a first name, last name combo. And then there's another site which randomly generates from genealogy records, random first names and last names. So this would be pretty random. It wouldn't exactly comport with how often they occurred, I don't think, but maybe it did. Anyway, I tried it a few times and counted the first hundred results, and I never got close to 13% or 13 out of 100 being the two first name combinations. So I asked myself, why? Why is it the case that so many of our elected officials have two first names? Well, I think two first names, it's, it's a waspy phenomenon. People who are elected to Senate are usually millionaires. People who are elected to governor are often very rich. There is a whiff of the establishment about having two first names. It almost always precludes Latinos, 14% of the population, the two first name phenomena is virtually unknown among Latinos. So there's a lot going on. And then there's another thing going on. And one of the reasons I think we don't trust the two first namers is that so many people change their names, famous people like John Stewart and Kirk Douglas and Tony Curtis. They change their names to being the two first that Cary Grant from some other name. Sometimes they keep their first name. You know, I think John Stewart was John Stewart Leibowitz and just dropped the last name. So they have two first names. It smacks of dishonesty. It smacks of putting on a show. And it does seem notable to me that so many elected officials have two first names in what seems to be a disproportionate amount as compared to the regular population. I can't get into it any further, but maybe they will cover this on Meet the Press, now hosted by Chuck Todd. And of course, it used to be hosted by David Gregory. In other name news, Hello Kitty, not a cat. I mean, is this news? I guess it is. This was everywhere. The LA Times interviewed an anthropologist, and it turns out that Hello Kitty, according to the parent corporation, Sanrio, is not a cat. Although when a reporter called up the parent corporation to figure out what the heck you're talking about, Hello Kitty isn't a cat, the spokesman said, well, you know, like Mickey Mouse isn't a mouse. I mean, he talks and walks upright. So I don't know how much of a revelation this was. But buried in that report is that Hello Kitty is in Hello Kitty's name. It's 
Kitty White. Hello Kitty's name is Kitty White. This is a little like Arrested Development, the character named Anyang, which was, of course, just Korean for hello, but they didn't know this, so they named the poor kid Anyang. In other name news, let's talk about what the UK is naming the threat level they're under. Here's Prime Minister David Cameron today. The Joint Terrorism Analysis Center has increased the threat level in the United Kingdom from substantial to severe. So in the U.S., we used to have color-coded threat levels, and the colors correlated to words, then we lost the colors. And now here are the colors, and here are the words they correlated to. Green was low, blue was guarded, yellow was elevated, orange was high, and red was severe. So in the United States, the worst it could be, the scariest you could get, was severe. But in the U.K., their gradation never had colors, so they weren't infantilizing their population, just possibly confusing them, because it went from low to moderate to substantial, I'm fine with that, to severe, that second most threatening, to critical which is above severe. Now, I submit that there are no gradations between severe and critical. I say that the human mind cannot comprehend between those threats. To me, severe means really, really freak out. Critical means truly, truly freak out. It's just both saying freak out. Now, I know the English tend to inflate some words, just as we Americans do. I'm thinking of the English word brilliant. So maybe severe is really English for panic, adequately panic, Well, anyway, I say it's rubbish, and I say it leaves me knackered. Back here in the United States, in more name news, let's talk about the name of our upcoming holiday, Labor Day. I gotta say, in a word fight between ownership and labor, ownership is winning. Ownership is controlling. I own you. Ownership is empowering. This is your project, Stanley. You own it. Ownership is 12-steppy. Take ownership of your situation. Labor's not doing well, right? The horse is laboring in the backstretch, or I went through five hours of labor to deliver you. That doesn't sound like fun. A day laborer, that's low status. Manual labor. I mean, once it gets above manual labor, sometimes it's called skilled labor, but usually we just take away the word labor. So labor kind of only means manual labor. So not to belabor this point, but I noticed even the middle tier between owner and labor gets better press than labor. Manage. I'll manage. You manage your finances. You're the manager of the year. There's no laborer of the millennium. Management has its own band. Andrea, you know these guys, right? The management. They, you went to college with them, right? Yeah. I think we all call them MGMT now. But back, I still call them the management. Because back in college they were... The management. I'm Let's keep some management up as I say this, as I implore you, that this Labor Day, I want everyone to think of labor and to labor to think better of it, to maybe throw labor in a phrase where it doesn't normally go, right? Like instead of saying the Seahawks, you know, I think they'll win the Super Bowl again this year because they have the best team and the best players in the NFL. No, say they have the most talented labor force. If the kids are busy digging sandcastles, don't call them busy as bees, call them wondrous labor ants. Savor labor. Do yourself a favor. And we will be taking the day off, but we are eager to see you again in September. And we will continue on this, the gist, our labor of love. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi produces the podcast and bemoans daily the discontinuation of Satisfries. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, never got busy in a Burger King bathroom, but once had a serious breakthrough at a drive-thru in an In-N-Out burger. You can listen to SoundCloud. You can go to iTunes. We are on Yo. Get the app. Go to Yo and then subscribe to Podcast. 
And when our podcast is ready, we'll hit you up. When we're ready to go, we'll yo. 602 yo subscribers to date. Slate.com slash gist email is the place to go to sign up for our email. It will hit your inbox as soon as we're ready to go. Or you could yell. Facebook.com slash slate gist is where I go. Oh, almost every day. Maybe not over the three day weekend, but I participate in all the discussions of content on the show there. Our Twitter feed is slate gist. Email the gist at slate.com. Now, this is true. You may be too young to remember this, but in 1985, Burger King had this huge ad campaign called Where is Herb? Herb was the only man never to have eaten a Burger King Whopper, you know, because in 1985, there were no vegetarians or Hindus. Anyway, if you went into a Burger King and said, I'm not Herb, you got a 99-cent Whopper. Now, there is one problem. A small, small fraction of people who ate in Burger King, just by chance, are going to be named Herb. And they were specifically instructed to tell the people, I'm not the specific Herb you're looking for. Now, if I was working at a Burger King counter back then, and some poor guy named Herb came in, I'd have just leaned over the counter, I'd have, like, handed him a bag of fries, and I would have said, hey, listen, man, I'm sorry our stupid ad campaign is making your life hell, and if it helps, our sales are down 40% because of it. Take the fries on the house. Thank you for your patronage, and as far as this apology, thanks for listening. You already know, I'm in the fast lane from L.A. to Tokyo. I'm so fancy, can you taste this gold? Remember my name, bout to blow. <laughs>